The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Two interviews on the show today. Mark Zuckerman will be our guest. Mark was at Nats Park Saturday night when those shots rang out. So we will talk to Mark about that experience of being there. And then we'll talk some Nats baseball with him as well. They got a huge win late yesterday against the Padres to snap a six-game losing skid. And then after Mark, Bailey Davis will be our guest on the podcast. Who's Bailey Davis? You'll have to stay tuned to find out. But I think you will really enjoy uh, the interview um, with Bailey. Uh, Prior to uh, both of those interviews, a few things to get to here in the open, including some breaking news from the Washington football team uh, this morning. Arlette Snyder, Dan Snyder's mother, the team put out a statement that she passed away earlier this month. No cause of death listed for Arlette Snyder, um, but the team put out a statement that reads as follows, quote, Mrs. Snyder was a kind, gentle, and generous woman who was loved and greatly admired by all who knew her. She will be deeply missed and forever in our hearts. The Snyder family requests that their privacy be respected as they grieve the passing of their mother and grandmother, closed quote. Arlette Snyder owned 6.5% of the Washington football team, the equity in the Washington football team. Michelle, the sister, owns 12.6%. My guess is that Arlette Snyder's 6.5% stake will be willed to either Dan or a combination of Dan and his sister. Um, Dan's father, Jerry, if you recall, died back in 2003. And, you know, if you know a little bit about the Dan Snyder rise as an entrepreneur into a position to buy the Washington football team, his parents had a lot to do with it. Jerry and Arlette were significant investors in his very first business, Snyder Communications, which eventually was sold for a boatload of money, which gave Dan the capital to be a player um, in the original um, intent to buy the team in partnership with uh, Milstein, and then on his own uh, with both mother, um, father, and sister, along with other investors, Uh, And they were ultimately successful in purchasing the franchise in 1999. Um, So the family, as 
currently um, constructed in terms of the equity structure own all of the equity uh, in the football team. And again, um, I would imagine that our let's 6.5% stake in the franchise would just be willed to Dan, uh, Michelle, um, combination of both. Um, now the first thing is this, uh, sympathies to the Snyder family for the loss of their mother and grandmother. Um, you know, certainly, um, this is a tough time for them. The second part of this is that, um, I, I've known for a while um, that Mrs. Snyder passed away. I'm not saying that to say I knew before anybody else did, but I have been curious over the last couple of weeks as to why the team had not put out a statement um, on her passing. I learned of it two and a half weeks ago. It, it happened shortly after, either the day or, or two days after, the July 4th first summary from the league on the Beth Wilkinson investigation, which included that $10 million fine of the franchise. Now, they have, the, it's their prerogative to announce it, not announce it, announce it whenever they want. But I was just sort of curious as to why it hadn't come out because Arlette Snyder was an equity holder in an NFL franchise. And typically uh, typically those things um, you find out um, shortly after it happens. And look, two and a half weeks later is still shortly um, after it happened. But again, sympathies to the family. I wanted to get to a few other things before we get to the two interviews scheduled for today. There was another story that came out this morning that I thought was interesting, and it deals with thoughts that Michael Irvin, the great Dallas Cowboys Hall of Fame wide receiver, had about the Dallas Cowboys and their vaccination rates. Apparently, according to reports, the Cowboys are not one of those teams that have reached the desired 85% threshold of players being vaccinated per team. We did the story last week that the Associated Press had that just four teams had actually achieved at least the 85% level, Pittsburgh, Miami, Carolina, and Denver, and that two teams were well under 50% vaccination rates. Not well under, but under 50% vaccination rates. And those two teams, per the AP, were Washington and Indianapolis. So Washington was on the lower end. And when we had this conversation last week, and I think it was with Tommy, um, it wasn't about you know vac- vaccination shaming or preaching or lecturing. Um, my personal position is your, your body, your choice. Now I'm vaccinated and everybody that I love in my life, I have recommended, um, that they get vaccinated. Um, that's my opinion. Um, I think, you know, you should get vaccinated, but it's your body, your choice, et cetera. However, the conversation that we had last week was more about, you know, sports and the competitive disadvantage that you potentially put your team in if your team is among the lower vaccinated rated teams. You know, you are much more um, monitored. Uh, There are many more rules around, you know, unvaccinated players than vaccinated players. And the bottom line is, is that the probability that you are at a competitive disadvantage and it manifests itself that way, say in losing key players to key games, the probability is higher that you suffer that consequence if you are on the lower end of the vaccination levels. 
Um, and Washington and Indianapolis are. Now, Michael Irvin went off on the Cowboys without even knowing what the Cowboys' actual vaccination percentage is because it it has not been reported. But what he did know when he went off um, yesterday or this weekend, I think, um, was that the Cowboys weren't among the teams that had reached the 85% vaccination threshold. Kevin Seifert from ESPN reported that 13 of the NFL's 32 teams have reached the 85% vaccine threshold, which automatically eases COVID-19 restrictions during training camp, which begins this week. Now, any player that's unvaccinated is going to um, be faced with various challenges that uh, vaccinated players won't be faced with. I listed those last week, if you recall. Unvaccinated players must continue to get daily testing, whereas uh, vaccinated players don't have uh, to get uh, tested daily. Um, They have to wear masks. They have to practice physical distancing. They can't eat meals with teammates. They can't participate um, in uh, team marketing activities while traveling. They're not permitted to use the sauna or steam room. Um, They can't leave the team hotel or interact with people outside the team while traveling. Vaccinated players will not have any of those restrictions. Well, what Michael Irvin knows for sure is that the Cowboys aren't among the teams that reach the 85% threshold. Kevin Seifert reporting that 13 teams have. So at an event, I think over the weekend, it was an event called Merging Vets and Players, an event which brings together combat veterans and former pro athletes. Michael Irvin went off on the Cowboys. He said... It should upset them that they're not at that threshold. You're not thinking right if you haven't gotten vaccinated. Whatever you got, I don't give a damn. Nothing else can be more important. You're not going to get to a Super Bowl easily. Nothing else could be more important. Jimmy Johnson made that abundantly clear. Nothing else is more important than team. And not being one of the teams to reach that threshold, says there's other things to a great number of people on this team that are more important than winning championships, and that makes me worried. If you're not one of those teams at the threshold, 85%, I say parenthetically, are you really thinking about winning a championship? Michael Irvin continues. You see what I'm saying? Okay, so now if you're not getting vaccinated and you've got all these other teams that are getting vaccinated... Well, somebody in that damn locker room should say, hey, man, if we're going to have a chance, are you vaccinated? Let's go through this because this could be a two-week healthy dude missing games. And in this league, this ain't the NBA. In this league, that, that could be it for you. The right person misses two weeks, that's it. Your ass is out, closed quote. What he's saying there is, you know, the NFL's got 17 games, the NBA 82. You get a key dude missing two games, that could be it. And we know, as NFL fans, it's a league of attrition. The healthier teams tend to be the teams that win. The unhealthy teams tend to be the teams that lose more. Um, So he went off, and I would think, certainly, in a lot of NFL locker rooms, that this is a conversation. Do we really want to have the best chance to win? Well, if we want to have the best chance to win, if we want to have the least risk of losing key players in key games that could cost us a playoff berth, we've got to have 
everybody vaccinated. We've got to be at that 85% threshold. Washington not even close right now. A couple of other things. The NBA Finals. Um, wow, what a game on Saturday night. Uh, when we did the podcast on Friday, we talked about the game on Thursday night. The Saturday night game was really good. You know, I don't know. I think these NBA playoffs have been great, and then I think there was a two-week lull there with some bad games and blowout games, and I think the beginning of the finals weren't great. But you see two teams, two cities, desperate to win a world championship, and you can just see it in the performances. You can see it in the intensity on defense. Uh, The game Saturday night was great, and obviously the play of the game was late after Phoenix had closed the – uh, Milwaukee lead down to a point and had the ball late. And Devin Booker, he either should have shot it earlier or the ball should have moved a little bit. I'm not among the people that believe that Monty Williams should have called a timeout and set something up. You know, you had Milwaukee, um, you know, scrambling a little bit, you know, after uh, I think it was Holiday had missed sort of a floater. And then Booker had the rebound, and they had a chance, and Booker had the ball, man, and he's been the guy. By the way, Chris Paul bounced back with an outstanding game and was crucial down the stretch in the fourth quarter of that game. But Booker you know, Booker had the ball taken from him by Drew Holiday. And then Drew Holiday, instead of dribbling out the clock or attempting to dribble out the clock and getting fouled and then making two free throws for a three-point lead, threw the lob to Giannis for the dunk. Chris Paul fouled him. He made the free throw. They win by four. Giannis was phenomenal and has been phenomenal in this series. But Milwaukee won the game on Saturday night because of Drew Holiday's performance. You know, Drew Holiday in game four, Um, in the game that they won despite an ugly offensive performance from Drew Holiday, who went four for 20 in that game. Um, Four for 20 in game four. Uh, They won that game. Um, You know, they came back to win that game uh, against Phoenix at home to tie that series at two games apiece. The other night was a gem of a performance. 27 points, 13 rebounds, three steals, a block shot, 12 of 20, 60% from the field, 3 for 6 from behind the arc, 50%. And again, stifling incredible defense at times, including the key steal and the key play of the game. Drew Holiday, even when he's been off offensively, has been great defensively. Um, That was a great basketball game Saturday night. A great basketball game. Um, A game that was better played and less sloppy than maybe the two games that preceded it. Uh, unfortunately for Phoenix, I thought the last possession, the ball just was, it never left Devin Booker's hands. I thought he should have shot it earlier. Um, and once he got into traffic, like Chris Paul in game four, who lost it in traffic when they were down two in the final minute, Booker ends up having it ripped, uh, from him by Drew Holiday. And so you have Giannis with the dunk and the foul and the made free throw. So Giannis has the block in game four and has the dunk in game five. I don't think the series is over. I think Phoenix can win tomorrow night in Milwaukee. Uh, Would I bet on it? Probably not. But I would love to see a game seven in this series. Uh, It's great that we have had the NBA Finals during the slowest portion, typically, of the sports calendar. 
One last thing, and we'll get to Mark Zuckerman. Um, I, I ask everybody all the time uh, to subscribe to The Athletic because personally I love it. I think it's totally worth it. They put out this morning a survey of Washington football team fans about a number of questions. I'm not going to read through all 20 of the questions with answers because I'm not going to give you all of the content. You know, if you want the rest of it, you'll have to subscribe to The Athletic. Um, But I'm going to give you a couple of things that were very interesting to me. Okay, the first is dealing with the quarterback question. You know, this is a survey of Washington football fans, and it asks a lot of key football-related questions that I thought were interesting. The first one about the quarterback was, who should start at quarterback in week one? 91.2% of the respondents said Ryan Fitzpatrick. This is not a who do you think will start at quarterback in week one. This is who should start at quarterback in week one. This speaks to this conversation that we've had where, you know, some believe that, you know, a big portion of the fan base really wants Taylor Heineke or thinks that Taylor Heineke should start. No, they don't. And he's not going to. 91.2% said Fitzpatrick. 8.6% said Taylor Heineke. So that's 99.8% of the vote, which means 0.2% said Kyle Allen. So who should start at quarterback in week one? Ryan Fitzpatrick should start in week one. And then a second question, there were 20 of them with a bonus question. What is your expectation for Fitzpatrick? And the choices were, that he starts, he plays well, and he shows he's not slowing down. The second answer was he starts, but he struggles with turnovers. The third answer was he splits time at quarterback with somebody else. And the fourth answer is he doesn't win the starting job. Well, we already know what the starting job answer is going to be. That's 2.1% of the vote. All right. Um, 52.2% believe that he will start, play well, and show that he's not slowing down. 33.8% said he will start but struggle with turnovers. And then really, um, you know, roughly 14% think that he either doesn't win the starting job, which is only 2.1%, or that he splits time with somebody else at quarterback. Um, And then there was one last question and answer that I wanted to give you because I thought it was really interesting. Um, And I'm not necessarily sure what it totally speaks to. But there was a question um, to fans about how many regular season home games do you plan to attend this year? This is a a tricky question, right? Because you don't know why the answer is what it is. You know, if people say I'm not going to any, which I'll get to the results here in a moment, is it because they are, you know, hesitant um, around the issues of COVID-19 and returning to large gathering events? Um, what is it? We, we all have this feeling that the football operation is being perceived by a lot in the fan base as, as more optimistic than in recent years. We also know that the last time fans could come to games back in 2019, it was the worst um, attendance year really probably in the history of the franchise in modern times. It was also one of the worst television rating years for them. Um, how many regular season home games do you plan to attend this year? 
65% of the respondents said zero. And 28.9% said between one and two games. In the whole um, pie uh, uh, graph, if you will, only 6.1% of the respondents said that they would go to three or more games this year. 65% said zero. That's unbelievable. Because what I will tell you it must reflect is that the team is not doing very well with ticket selling at all. Now, again, what are the reasons for that? You know, is it because everybody's done, they're down on the team, they're down on the stadium, or is it COVID-19 related? But that's a big percentage of people that say zero games when we all believe that there's some optimism. I think what it reflects really more than anything else. And if you read through the 20 questions of survey, you'll see that I think people are generally and genuinely optimistic about the football team, but they are still very negative about the franchise as a whole and things like the stadium and going to these games. I think, and I've said this many times before, that you can be more optimistic than you've been in recent years about the football team, but you can simultaneously hate the organization and what they've stood for but then also feel like maybe it's on the verge of turning around. But all of it sort of leads to, for most, wait and see. Wait and see. Like, I'll believe it when I see it. All right, when we come back, Mark Zuckerman will be our guest. Uh, by the way, I didn't mention Wes Unsell Jr., officially the coach. I think we had talked about that on Friday to a certain degree of the Washington Wizards. Uh, we will try on the podcast. I know on the on radio, I think I'm going to have either Wes Jr. or Tommy Shepard on the show. So if that happens, uh, I will let you, let you know on social media. Um, up next, my conversation with Mark Zuckerman right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A wild weekend uh, at Nats Park with everything that went on Saturday night and then a thrilling uh, series finale game 
against the Padres, which ended uh, late yesterday afternoon. Here to discuss all of it, he was there for all of it, is Mark Zuckerman, longtime um, uh, Nats uh, reporter for Mass and Sports. He's part of the Nats Chat uh, podcast with Al Galdi and Tim Shovers. I would urge you to listen to that. And, of course, you can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Zuckerman. All right, so l- I do want to get to the team and the game yesterday and really where the team is right now because there were players playing this weekend. I'm not going to lie to you. I-, I didn't even recognize the name. There was an R. Rivera, and I was wondering if Ron Rivera had a son <laughs> who was playing for the team who who I think caught for them um, at some point this weekend. All right, so you were there Saturday night in the press box. Just give us sort of a minute-by-minute the whole thing lasted like five minutes before people really were told anything. What was it like from your vantage point? So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think everyone who was there probably had a little different perspective on it, depending on where you were in the ballpark. So because I was in the press box high up, far removed from where it actually happened, um, I think I probably never felt really in danger myself the way that fans in the stands who were much closer to it probably did. Now, I heard the shots, clearly. It was as, uh, as soon as the top of the sixth ended, it was like a split second later, and I turned to someone in the press box and said, was that gunshots? Like, it sounded like it. And then you start looking in that area. You could tell it comes come from the third base side. And I didn't know if it was inside or outside the stadium. And then maybe 30 seconds later, I saw lots of fans running along the concourse on the left field side heading toward the center field gate. And that's when I thought, oh, no, something did happen. And then you saw the team come off the field. So that was the initial thing. But it looked like it was isolated to that part of the ballpark. And then it wasn't for another minute, or uh, it's, it's hard to know <laughs> how long it really was, maybe it was a minute, that you start to now see fans on the other side of the stadium scrambling. And I think that's because they had gotten word and somebody starts yelling, shooter, something like that. And so that, of course, leads to the panic that ensued. And so that was the only moment that I think us, all of us in the press box maybe had a little bit of concern for ourselves, which was we didn't know, okay, is, this, is there somebody else who's out there? Could this be some kind of coordinated actually like attack on the stadium? And so we did like just get down under the desktop just for a minute, just in case. And uh, during that time is when the first announcement came on the scoreboard saying that what had happened was outside the park. And at that point, they were telling people to please stay inside the park. Uh, and then it was a few minutes after that that they then announced you can leave through center field and right field. So um, obviously those who were much closer to where it occurred had a very different experience and a terrifying experience for them. Uh, for those of us who were a little farther removed from it, it was more just a matter of trying to figure out what actually happened here and did it happen inside or outside the ballpark. Yeah, I mean, I had Sam Fortier from the Washington Post on um, the radio show this morning, and I would urge anybody um, to go listen to it because Sam was actually in the crowd as a spectator. He wasn't working that night and was sitting upper level. I'm not sure why he got tickets that were so bad. Upper level (laughs) third base side with a bunch of friends and um, he immediately went into reporter mode and went to the top of the stadium and was able to look out look out onto onto South Capitol Street. But you know what's really 
so three people, you know, the, the reporting on this isn't complete, obviously. We don't have motive. We don't even know who was firing the shots. We don't know whether it was one from, from one car into another um, or there was return fire from the other car. We know that three people were injured, not seriously. I'll tell you the lucky thing, Mark, is that you know, with all the video that came out, uh, there was legitimate for five or so minutes panic and chaos, you know, in the park. And I think people, um, you know, have to feel fortunate and certainly the team as well that nobody was really hurt. I think one woman suffered a broken nose and that was it. Sometimes you end up getting serious injuries or serious health related issues when there's panic and chaos like that. Right, and and hopefully we don't hear about any more in the next day or two, and, and who knows what might still get out about that. But you know, you're right that that would be a, a major concern. And you know, I think like everyone else, the day after the fact, you start thinking about okay, how did this all play out? Was it handled well? Is there anything that could have done differently? And to be honest, I'm not sure what else could have been done in the moment. I, they prepare for things, but as Davy Martinez said. You can you can practice all this stuff all you want, but when it actually happens and there's thirty thousand people in the ballpark, it's never going to go the way that you think it might. And so I thought they made the announcements as quickly as you reasonably could expect under those circumstances. You know, it, it takes time to get the message up to the person who can then make the announcement, and for everyone to figure out what happened and where was it. And I don't fault the fans who did panic the way that they did. Now, in, in hindsight, especially the people on the first base side, right field side, they were never in any danger at all and didn't need to move. But I can understand why they did. All it takes is the visual of fans in another part of the park running and one person yelling shooter to make everybody scramble. And it's a sad commentary on the state of our society that that is something that we all, uh, unfortunately, our ears are sort of perked up for those things now and your instinct is to run and protect yourself and others and so i can't fault anyone who may have done that hopefully nobody got hurt in the process but i'm sure they're going to review all of this the nationals will and, and say you know how did this go did we do it as well as we could i i feel like they did the best job they could under those circumstances and i think everyone's just grateful that more people didn't get hurt and you know not that it helps make this any better necessarily it's still a bad thing that happened but I do take some comfort in knowing that this was an isolated incident that occurred outside the ballpark, and it really had nothing to do with the game. It just happened to take place right. while a game was going on. I think the fear for a lot of us who go to all these games, and I'm sure anyone who ever attends a game, is could anything ever happen that was intended to disrupt a game with 30,000 fans there? And thankfully, this was not that. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh... And I thought Dave Martinez is incredibly um, emotional, compassionate, and by the way, that is clearly his default and its genuine um, handling of it in that press conference was, um, I don't know, It's it, for me it's like now on a, uh, on a list of, of the way he sort of handles situations as a spokesperson for the organization. He's a really good spokesperson for the organization. He is, and I feel bad for him that he ends up being the one who often has hold that role, because especially in this case, I felt like there may have been somebody else in a higher-up position somewhere, you know, not not a baseball-related person, who could speak to all this, but um, it was Davey, and he does it exceptionally well, 
and you're right, it is genuine. There's nothing phony about him. He cares about people tremendously, and not just the people who work with him, with the team. As we've heard the stories about fans being ultimately welcomed into the clubhouse corridor for a little while, um, that was Davey, and, and he cares about everyone, and he does consider the fans of this team part of his family as well. He is as genuine as they come, and they're very lucky to have him as their manager. You know, you said something, and it just reminded me of something, and um, I'll tell you about it. I don't know if you will remember it. Um, you probably will. A lot of our, our listeners may remember it, but I was in Caesars Palace's parking lot for Riddick Bowe Evander Holyfield back in, I, I, I think it was like 93 or 94, somewhere in that time frame. It was, it was early to mid-90s. It was the fan man fight where the guy yeah. came in on a hang glider, paraglider, parachute, you know, whatever it was. Um, you remember this, right? Yeah, I do, yeah. So, you know, this is 1993, 94, 95-ish. I'm looking it up right now just to get the date as I said it. Um, And it was such a different time because 2001, 9-11 hadn't happened. And this dude, here here it was. So it was November 6th, 1993. Yes, it was a football weekend in Vegas for about 12 of us. And we (laughs) ended up, uh, there were probably like six of us that went to the fight. And the one thing I do remember about that night, and Tommy will remember this because I guarantee he was there, it was frigid in that park, in in that arena for that fight. Anyway, he literally flew in right over our heads. Now, we weren't in the first 10 rows, but we were back probably in row 15 or 20. And as it started, as the arena started to go, you know, sort of upwards into a bowl of an arena, and he flew right over our heads. And to be honest with you, I, I remember my reaction like, What's this dude doing? It wasn't like he's got a bomb strapped to his back because we didn't really think that way back then. Right, um, if right. that had happened now, there would have been much more panic. I do remember this. He got the shit kicked out of him ringside by um, a bunch of of guys. Um, uh, what's his face? Um, uh, too legit to quit. Why am I blanking on his name? MC Hammer? MC Hammer and a bunch of his guys were sitting ringside and they beat the living crap out of this dude. <laughs> and and really it was more sort of entertaining to watch that than to even consider what may have happened. Um but anyway, I digress. Let's get to the baseball team. Okay. You know, you and I talked um either on radio or on the podcast, but I think it was on radio right before this 17 hideous game schedule um, where, you know, it included the Mets for that one game and then it was Tampa and then it was the Dodgers and it was the Giants and it was the Padres and it was the Padres again. And I remember you saying they're going to have to come out of this thing like eight or nine, nine or eight, you know, to, to sort of hang in there. Obviously, injuries and everything else um, made it a, a really rough stretch that ended well yesterday. We'll get to the game yesterday in a moment, but um, 
Overall, they are six games below 500. They are also only six games out of the lead in the National League East because the rest of the division hasn't played well at, uh, at all either. But just give me, after this roughest portion of the schedule for the season, where they are right now. Like, where, What kind of team are they, and what kind of legitimate chance do you give them to being you know, a significant player here in, in the last, you know, at this point, you know, 70-something games? It was a brutal stretch, even worse than I think we could have thought it would go for a variety of reasons. But the injuries were a big part of it. And, I mean, they are so banged up right now, so depleted. And to have that happen at the same time that you're facing three of the best teams in the league, I mean, they look outclassed by the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Padres. They just did. Now, if they're healthy, is a different story? Probably. I think they could hold their own with some of these teams. But they don't have the depth to overcome the kind of injuries they've had. And so that's why uh, they, they really looked inferior to those three teams in particular over the last couple of weeks. Now, I would say that this would vary them, except for what you just pointed out, is that the rest of the division, the way it's gone, the Mets kind of collapsed themselves over the last week, right. lost a bunch of games to the Pirates. Now DeGrom is on the I.L., Lindor is on the I.L. And so because of that, that's the saving grace. Now, the Phillies got hot all of a sudden. They're two games out. The Braves have, you know, Acuna's out for the year. They've got all kinds of issues. So that's the only reason to think that maybe the Nats can actually get themselves back in it. If they're in another division right now, it's over. But because the East is so bad and because everyone else is so bad, there's still a glimmer of hope. This week is now critical for them. They're facing the Marlins and the Orioles in six games. I hate to do this kind of thing, but I think they have to go 5-1 and one in it. Yeah. Like, you have to take advantage of the weaker opposition. The schedule's getting a whole lot easier now. They're not going to be facing the West teams anymore. But you got to start winning games. You can't delay this much longer. You have to make your move at some point, especially if the Mets are vulnerable now. We don't know if they're going to get caught later on. So I do think this is a critical stretch. I'm not going to say they survived the last couple of weeks, because they did. They, they, really, they were worse than that. But because of the Mets, the Phillies, the Braves, there's still a glimmer of hope but they've got to turn it on now that they're facing lesser competition. Yeah, the, the Orioles are terrible. The Marlins actually aren't a terrible team. You know, it was uh, interesting, and I remember sort of following this, after the Dodgers came in here and swept Washington, I think the Marlins, like, took, you know, two or three from the Dodgers in the in the subsequent series um, with them. They're not, they're not terrible, and the Phillies are playing better, and I know they have a four-game set with Philadelphia at the end of this month um, on the road. That'll be huge, and a bunch of games in general with Philadelphia the rest of the way. So I do want to ask you a couple of things. First of all, r- relative to yesterday's game, do you think Grisham should have made that catch on the Escobar uh, game-winning uh, single? Game-winning you know, hit? He, it, it, I was interesting how he went after it because it was one of those balls that kind of kept going, and then you realize, that, oh, he's not going to get it. And I don't know if it's because he was playing shallow. I mean, Escobar is not known as a power hitter, although he did homer the previous inning. Uh, and the other weird thing about that game yesterday, the first uh, I don't know, five innings or something. The ball, everything was knocking the ball down. The wind was coming in, right? And late in the game, all of a sudden, it started flying. So maybe that had something to do with it. So I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think that ball was was really hit well, and maybe he didn't realize how well it was hit, and that's why I cleared him. But boy, Trent Grisham at Nationals Park, <laughs> poor guy. He's had some rough moments yeah. the last few years. Although he got his revenge, he had the game-winning hit in San Diego that crazy game two weeks ago. 
I, I, I'm wondering actually now that you say it with you know runners on first and second with a runner in scoring position and one out he may have been playing shallow anyway. Right um, for a play at the plate. Yeah, yeah for a play at the plate. In fact, I, you know I, I was in listening to the broad uh, in watching the broadcast on TBS. Um, there was actually the suggestion that if Grisham makes the catch with his momentum, you know, carrying him into the wall. Uh, could Barrera have scored on a tag up from second? No chance. No, no. Turner maybe, but not Trent Barrera. Yeah, not Barrera. Um, in yeah. fact, on the on the foul bunt attempt by Robles, I mean he he would have easily been thrown out at, at second. Um, he was yeah. thrown out at second before it was overturned. So where are we on just injuries? How Strasburg was there another setback with him? So he did, before the All-Star break, face some live hitters in a simulated game. We didn't find out about this until after the All-Star break, that uh, the day following it, he still said that he wasn't feeling quite right in his neck, so they're backing off a little bit. And I was told it's not you know, season-ending, this isn't like a, a terrible thing, but it is enough to make them hold off a little bit. So it's you know two steps forward, one step back. It's frustrating for everyone, but they're not going to put him out there until they're confident that this is behind him and it's not going to be an issue. Uh, Joe Ross is not ready to start yet. Um, it may be another week for him. Kyle Schwarber, of course, is going to be a slow process to get the hamstring healed. So the thing that and was so noticeable this weekend, you mentioned the catcher you never heard of, Rene Rivera. Jan Gomes is a huge loss for them. Yes. And I remember saying to Al on our podcast a week or two ago that while Trey Turner is the MVP of the team so far this season, there's a case he made that the the guy who's next on the list they could least afford to lose is Jan Gomes. And you saw it this weekend in calling games, in throwing runners out, in offense, everything. They are desperately missing him, and we don't really know how long it's going to be. It's an oblique, and those things can last a while. So that could be a huge loss. For what about Schwarber? Uh, you know, he's only now starting to take a few little like, light swings. Yes, he's so careful with that with a hamstring. He desperately wants to get back, of course. But that's one that you know you also cannot rush it because all of a sudden it can blow out and miss the rest of the year. So I think we're still several weeks away for him, unfortunately. Now the weird thing is, offensively they've done all right since he got hurt. That hasn't been a huge issue here. They've been scoring some runs, but of course in the long run they need him. It's helped that Juan Soto all of a sudden looks like Juan Soto again. Um, lastly, Castro, will you update everybody on what the situation with him is? Yeah, boy, it feels like that was a month ago, and that was just yeah. Friday afternoon. <laughs> and what a weekend. Right. Um, placed on administrative leave, an allegation of domestic violence against him. And there hasn't been a whole lot since then, although, to be honest, we've had so many other topics to ask about that hasn't come up. But what I can tell you is this is an MLB's hands. This is not a national issue. And what we've seen in other cases with other players and coaches and executives, Trevor Bauer, uh, Jared Porter, the Mets GM, Nikki Calloway, the former coach. MLB's investigative unit takes a long time to do these things. These do not happen quickly. Right. So even though administrative leave is officially seven days, I would fully expect it to be extended, and it could be a while. And don't be shocked if it's not even resolved until late in the season, if not even until after the season. Um, I would be surprised at this point if we see Sarah Castro again this year. 
You said it. These next games coming up are, are crucial. Now, you know, the Mets aren't playing great. The Phillies have actually, you know, picked up some ground here and they seem to be playing better. But it's an, if they were in any other division, it would be over. I mean, I think they, the next worst division leader is 17 games over 500. And, wow. and, and the Mets are sitting there at six games over 500. So the Nats are lucky, you know, similar to the Washington football team, lucky that they're in the division they're in because it's not over. But they got to get healthier um, to have any chance. Um, thanks. And, you know, I think a lot of people were following you on Twitter on Saturday night. And, you know, I know it was a hectic situation, but good job on keeping everybody up to date. And um, read Mark, of course. Follow him on Twitter. Read his recaps of all these games. It's totally worth it. And then the Nats Chat podcast with uh, our good friend Al Galdi and our other good friend Tim Shovers um, is totally worth the listen. There's no other, you know, sort of immediate recap of each Nats game uh, like those guys do it because it just doesn't happen uh, like it used to on Masson. Um, Thank you. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Kevin. Mark Zuckerman, everybody, a crazy weekend at Nats Park. Up next, a rising star in sports. Her name is Bailey Davis. Who is she? I'll explain right after these words from a few of her sponsors. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, we're going to finish up the podcast today with an interview, which I will get to momentarily. A few weeks back, I mentioned Marty West's name. There was a dinner that I attended that honored the career of Marty West. Marty's the greatest amateur golfer in the history of this area, uh, one of the greatest amateur golfers of all time. And as part of that conversation, I mentioned that upcoming in the uh, middle of July was the USGA Girls Junior Championship, which was going to be held and was held last week at Columbia Country Club in Chevy Chase. And the significance of that event is, A, it's the number one um, girls junior amateur event of the year globally. And number two, the number one ranked amateur female player in the world was going to be competing in it. Uh, well, it started last week. It concluded on Saturday. And my guest was actually in the finals on Saturday. Her name is Bailey Davis. But before we bring Bailey on, let me just give you you know some context for this. So the event started last Monday. The USGA is the governing body of all of the big USGA events, which includes, by the way, the U.S. Open, the Men's U.S. Open, uh, which uh, was held last month um, at Torrey Pines. Uh, it has the USGA seven, eight, nine major events, and the U.S. Amateur events are among the major events, including the U.S. Men's Amateur and the U.S. Boys Junior Amateur, and then there's the U.S. Women's Amateur and the U.S. Girls Junior Amateur. Well, the U.S. Girls Junior Amateur was played last week and finished up on Saturday at Columbia. It was an anticipated event. 
The reason it was anticipated is because the number one player in the world, the number one female amateur player in the world, was playing in it. Her name, Rose Zhang. Rose is the number one ranked women's amateur as well as the number one ranked girls amateur. She's the reigning women's amateur champ. She won that in 2020 at Woodmont in Rockville. And she was competing for the final time in the U.S. Girls Junior. She's headed to Stanford. She's a phenom. She is expected to be a force on the LPGA Tour in years to come. She was a prohibitive favorite entering this event. Uh, This event, by the way, the format for all of these amateur championship events, or at least typically the format, is two rounds of stroke play. All right, so they play you know, counting their strokes, um, 18 holes, two rounds, and then the top 64 finishers, they narrow the field down to 64, then um, uh, continue the event in match play format the rest of the week. Well, Rose Zhang was one of two players among all of the players, the hundreds of players that competed in this event, uh, to finish under par after the two rounds of stroke play. She shot a one under 69 in round one and then fired an eight under 62 in the second round. She was nine under par. There was another player who was six under par. And then my guest, Bailey Davis, shot even par. She went 70-70. So just three total players, even par or better. Rose Zhang 62, by the way, for people that were there, and the event drew thousands last week, um, said, uh, a lot of people that saw it said it w- could have been better, that she lipped out like three or four birdie putts. So it could have been 59 or 58, some of the people that were there and watched her whole round. She's an incredible player. She was the big-time favorite. And going into match play, she was the number one seed, and she advanced to the final on Saturday. Well, waiting there for her in the final was the person who's going to join us, Bailey Davis. Bailey was not expected to be a contender entering this event. Um, She made the match play as the number three seed. She shot 70-70, even par, and was the three seed going into match play, which far exceeded the expectations that most had for her when she entered the event. In the round of 64 match play, um, the match was dead even after 18. They went to a playoff hole, and she holed out from the fairway for Eagle to win that first match and advanced to the round of 32. Then she moved her way through the rest of the week, the round of 16, round of uh, the quarterfinal round. She won her semifinal match, and there she was matched up against Rose in the final on Saturday, a scheduled 36-hole final, 18 in the morning and 18 that started sort of late morning, early afternoon. It was televised by the Golf Channel, the semifinals and the final were. Um, So, my guest, Bailey Davis, let me not bury the lead, I guess. She didn't win. Rose won the finals, six and four. She closed out Bailey Davis on number 14 on the second of the 18-hole um, 36 uh, hole match, the second 18. Um, six and four was the final, but she was very good. She played very well, but Rose Zhang was incredible. She shot the equivalent, you know, w- including concessions of a 64 in the early portion, the early 18. Um, and by the way, um, Bailey Davis was under par as well in that portion. And then one uh, on number 14 on the second 18 of the day. But Bailey Davis 
is a local. She graduated from North Point High School in Southern Maryland. She's on her way to the University of Tennessee. She made a lot of fans, earned a lot of respect over the last week. She's got big-time personality, a big, powerful game, and she also was vying to become the first-ever African-American female to win a USGA event. So with that, Let's bring on Bailey Davis. Congratulations. I know you would have preferred to have won the event, um, but you were great all week. Tell us about the week that just finished up on Saturday. This week was absolutely incredible. I My goal coming into this week was just to make the cut because I had played in two U.S. juniors in the past few years, and I have not made the cut. So... When I made the cut as the number three seed, that was pretty exciting. And then my first, I haven't had much experience with match play, but my first um, round of 64 was a pretty exciting ending. (laughs) I I was never up the entire day, but then I made an eagle on the first playoff hole in order to win it. So that was pretty exciting. And then after that, I just stayed steady and consistent, and I was able to win my next four matches. And then I knew playing Rose would definitely be a tough match. So I was prepared and I played well, but Rose just played better. Yeah, I mean, she's so good. You know, the one thing, and and I want to make sure everybody listening understands this, this is the biggest you know, junior girls event of the year. There were players from all over the world participating um, in this event. And, you know, this is one of the, I don't know, six, seven or eight USGA events, you know, led by the actual US Open itself um, a couple of, of weeks ago. Um, This is a huge event, and you mentioned um, the round in which you advanced with a – tell me, uh, you know, people have told me I was not there for this, but you chipped in on number one from from how many yards out to win that playoff? About 75 yards. (laughs) I I didn't even need to. Like, she hit her second shot way over the green by the fence. There – she would have had to hit a, an amazing chip or putt in order to make par. So I told myself, just get it on the green, make par, and you're going to win. And then it ended up going in. <laughs> that's that's wild. Now, I'm, I'm very familiar with the hole. First of all, the fact that you only had 75 yards left is scary to some of us because you, you really do hit the ball a long way, and you could see that. Um, so what'd you take? Was it, was it like a, a 60 degree and you knocked it in? Yes, it was a 60 degree. My caddy told me to hit it to about 65 yards. And I think I did that. I think it just landed in front and rolled in. Wow. Um, we're talking to Bailey Davis. Bailey was the runner up in the U S GA girls junior championship, losing to the heavy favorite, um, Rose Zhang. So, um, I want to find out a little about uh, a little bit about you and what you're doing and what's next. But I want to talk about the final match on Saturday. Mm-hmm. You know, it was tight um, in that first 18, but you, you know, you needed basically to run the table when you were six down with six to go. So I want to go to number 13, which was the first hole where you had a chance to stay alive, and it ended up being the last hole before the significant multi-hour delay. Um, you hit a great shot, 
and then you had one of those downhill sliders for par to keep the match alive. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm telling you, I, at that point, we were I was watching on television because after the delay, we went home. But um, that was that that had to be a nerve wracking putt. It was. I I hit my first putt, and my first putt was also downhill slider. So I was like, oh, it's going to be really fast, and it was not really fast. Right. So I left it about four feet short. I'm like, we, we put a little pressure on ourselves here. So I, but I had been practicing those putts all week. That's one thing that I think really helped me is I had so many of those throughout the entire week that my confidence with those just skyrocketed throughout the week. So I had some confidence in myself that I'd be able to make that putt and that I had the right line with that putt. Then you had the delay, and, and it was a shame because – I thought you had some momentum there. You know, you got some momentum on 12. You obviously followed it up on 13. I don't know. I felt like if you had stepped to the 14 tee box right there before the horn went off, you would have been, you know, you would have had a chance to get back into this thing. What did you think? I I was confident in my game, and I knew I was playing well that day, and I did feel that I had some momentum as well, but... I also know how good Rose is and that bogey that she made on 13 was only her second bogey out of the 32 holes. Yeah. So I knew that even if I did make birdie on one of the other holes that she would probably match me. (laughs) I, I probably would have had to birdie out in order to win because all she had to do was par a tie a hole and she would win. So I had confidence in my game, but I also knew how good Rose was, and I, I didn't have much faith at that point. Yeah, I, it's so. In, in listening to you speak, by the way, um, for those that watched, you know this, and for those that didn't, um, Bailey's got a ton of personality and played with such poise as she, you know, moved, uh, you know, throughout the week and and certainly um, on Friday and Saturday on two, you know, potential thirty six whole days, and. Um, Man, usually I just have to make like bogey net par to win a hole or maybe make par <laughs> net. And you knew you had to make birdies just to beat Rose. That's how good she is. Um, and then you come out after a three-hour or so delay and 14, I'm sure you realize this, that that's one of the toughest second shots on the course um, to that green, and she nearly drained it. She was in the right rough yeah. behind a tree. So she... She, that was the best shot I'd seen her hit all day. I mean, she was in the rough behind a tree, had to go over the bunker. The pin was in the back left where you could easily fall off the green in the, on the left. And she hits it 10 feet in front of the pin, hits the pin, and it ends up four feet from the pin. I know. It was crazy. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that was a rough way to end it because I think a lot of people at that point were really, um, really rooting for you. Um, yeah. All right, so, you know, you were attempting to become, Bailey was attempting to become the first African-American female to ever win a USGA title. Um, let's start with the beginning of the week because a lot of people don't know this who are listening to um, this for the first time. Who reached out to all of you, not just you, but every single player in the field before the tournament started with a letter? Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty exciting. Yeah, so that that must have been um, exciting. I think it was exciting for everybody 
um, in the field. So what did it mean to you to be in that final, you know, a televised final um, vying to become the first African-American female to win a USGA title? It took a while to hit me. I think when I got back to my hotel that night after I won the final four match, I realized, oh, my goodness, I'm playing in the championship tomorrow against Rose Bang, the number one amateur in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but um, And then I saw the post about me possibly becoming the first African-American, and it it would, would have been a huge milestone in my career and a huge milestone for every African-American watching you know, so it was extremely exciting for me. It was an honor for me, and I'm striving to put myself in that position again. Where do you go next? I would assume you're playing in more events, and I don't know, and you can help me with this, what did reaching the final, if anything, qualify you for? So I'm actually in Massachusetts right now for a fitting with Titleist um, to get fitted for some of their new clubs. But after this, I'm going back home, and I will be practicing and preparing for the Women's Dam. I got into the Women's Dam because I made it to the final, the championship match. So I will be leaving for that, I think, June 30th. I know the Women's Dam last year was played at Woodmont here locally. Where is it being played this year? It's in Rye, New York at Westchester. Oh, Westchester. Wow. So another another tough uh, venue, um, and uh, you know, for those that that didn't get a chance to see you, you obviously have. Um, I, I say obviously, you can tell me. Um, you, you're you're long off the tee. I mean, I uh, what was your average drive this week? Do you have any idea? Usually, it's about. 270 280 yeah. I'm not sure what it was this week but my ball striking was pretty solid this week so. yeah it was it was really s- solid and you hit it a-, a long way so you've got power w- w- the areas of your game that you're really confident in and the areas that you think you need to work on I'm pretty confident in myself off the tee I know I can put myself in a good position for the green for example, the first hole, like you were talking about, I had a wedge into that hole every day, so that was really nice because I just cut it down the right side over that bunker. Um, I think the areas that I could use some work on are definitely around the greens. I need a lot more finesse in my game around the greens, whether that's chipping um, or putting. Some of my wedge shots could definitely be tighter, and my my putting was I'd say it's, it was pretty solid this week, but there are still some areas that could be cleaned up. When did you start playing golf? I started swinging a club when I was six, but I actually started playing tournaments when I was around nine. Is your father and or mother, are they, athlete, are they athletes? Were they golfers? My parents were athletes, yes. My mom played field hockey at Ohio University, and my dad played volleyball and ended up coaching volleyball he's coached his entire life but my grandfather on my mom's side was actually the one that got me started with golf he took me over to the course when I was six and saw me swing a club once and he said wow she's a pretty good swing for a six-year-old so I started taking lessons and I've stuck with it ever since. Bailey do you play other sports or is golf it? I used to play volleyball. I played that up until junior year of high school. Um, I think that's what's really helped with my explosiveness and athleticism. I've played that since I was very, very young because of my father. 
And so um, I loved I loved playing volleyball, but golf was really my priority. And why Tennessee as you'll be heading to uh, to Knoxville in the fall as a college freshman? I had visited a lot of schools, and I liked them, but they were okay. They were never, oh, my goodness, this is my school. And all my friends told me, when you know, you'll know. And then when I went to Tennessee, I fell in love with the campus. I fell in love with the facilities that they have. They just built this new practice facility, and it is amazing. It is the best I have seen, and I've seen a lot of facilities. The coaches and the staff and the athletic director and the team, everyone made me feel so welcome. I felt like I was already a part of the team, and I wasn't even there yet. And so it just had that home feeling, and that's really what I was looking for. First of all, best of luck to you, especially in the Women's Am. I think a lot of people around here now are going to be following you and following your career, um, not only at Tennessee, but in these events that you play as an amateur moving forward. It was such an exciting week. I mean, you came into this thing as, you know, sort of an unknown, and you ended up as the number three seed after stroke play. There are only two players that finished stroke play under par. Um, it's yeah. it's still amazing to me, isn't it? Amazing to you that Rose shot sixty two. I yes, that the course is very difficult. The greens are very difficult. So, but at the same time, after watching her play, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, um, but you, I'll tell you, you matched her, um, and it was a compelling match. I know it ended uh, with that long weather delay, which sort of threw you off a little bit. But you really hung in there and. Um, you've got a lot to be proud of. Bailey, thanks so much. You developed a lot of fans over the last week, and we will be paying attention um, to your career here, not only the rest of this summer, but as you move on to Tennessee. Best of luck, all right? Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Bailey Davis, um, she did a great job last week. Uh, hope she has a great college career and beyond. Uh, that's it for the day. Thanks to Mark. Thanks to Bailey. Back tomorrow with Tommy.